Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Anthropology at Washington State University, Ed Hagen. Thanks for joining me today, Ed. And uh, among among the many things that you study, I'm I'm especially excited. I've been wanting for some time to get someone on here to talk more in depth about depression. It's something that's come up uh, here here and there throughout the podcast, and we've certainly touched on it. Um, but it's it's something that not only am I interested in because it's my depression's my jam. That's uh, <laughs> it's it's the it's the one thing that. Uh, that really affects me. I don't have like anxiety or you know OCD or anything like that, but depression gets me, and um, and made progress through the years. But it's something that I've been interested in, and all all the reading that I attempt to do and studying and everything else, I have had a very difficult time finding a clear pre- picture about what depression. Uh, is all about. So uh, first, I am curious, what got you into uh, researching depression in the first place? Well, when I was uh, an undergraduate, um, I was a math physics major, and I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to be doing math or physics for the rest of my life. And um, But I didn't know what I did want to do. And the struggle to figure out the right path for me was pretty intense at the time. And when I got through it, I realized um, if, if something as simple as a major choice of major can really throw me that much, what about, what about people with real problems? Um, And I didn't really buy the chemical imbalance story that we even still hear so much about today. Um, because I knew I was struggling with a real issue that I had to, to work through. And I was curious if folks who had had much more severe problems that they had to work through would also be having those same kind of strong or even, you know, obviously much stronger psychological, um, issues. And I just started talking to people, friends and, and kind of hearing their stories um, and kind of, you know, starting my career down the path of being an anthropologist, although at that time I hadn't really settled on anthropology. Uh, and as I talked with a lot of people, I, I realized a lot of people were struggling and their psychological distress was very closely tied to real issues in their lives. It wasn't just something that you woke up one morning for most people and suddenly you're miserable. Um, Something happened and there was some struggle um, that was very, very um, important and close and personal to them. And it was, I realized then that's, I want to solve that. I don't buy this chemical imbalance story. On the other hand, I still don't know what, how can we understand this scientifically? What's going on here? Um, my intuition was that 
the psychological distress they were experiencing had some function or role, was somehow there to help them, however uncomfortable and painful and distressing it was. Mm-hmm. And that's still where I am today. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence that actually is what's going on in most cases. In all cases, no. But in most cases, probably yes. Yeah, it's interesting because it it, it seems – I mean, from we have a lot of uh, evolutionary psychologists and biologists on the show, and and uh, certainly it's it's understandable how how something like anxiety serves uh, can, somewhat clear function. I mean, it's certainly more nuanced than just saying this, but it, but the idea of how, having fears kind of keeping you alive and and keeping you out of trouble seems pretty intuitive but uh depression's such a tricky one because it's just it's just so debilitating where sometimes it's like, i have to have um i have to have a bunch of podcasts just kind of in the bank ready to go i have to have like 10 right because i release one each week and sometimes i know i'm just going to get hit with like a two-week thing where i just can't do anything at all and uh and it is hard to see what, what kind of evolutionary function that would have to just kind of completely um, demotivate you. Right. And so my, my simple model, which actually has been proposed by a number of people, including myself, is, is what I call the psychic pain model. And I think maybe the first person to refer to this was Randy Thornhill at the University of New Mexico. And – it makes a very close analogy with physical pain. So if you break your ankle, you, it hurts and you can't do anything. Um, and that pain is extremely uncomfortable. It's disabling. It's costly. And yet it performs a very, very important function that if you break your ankle, you should not walk yeah. on that ankle uh, because you're going to make it worse, right. number one. And then number two, you should figure out what did I do? <laughs> to break my ankle so I don't do that again. So it has this both kind of a a motivating function to kind of motivate you to not further injure your ankle and to a learning function. (laughs) People are going to think that you're a regular listener to this podcast (laughs) because I actually broke both of my feet um, right before starting this podcast (laughs) and I talk about it a fair amount, but uh, sorry, go on. All right. So then, you know, Uh, I I I know all about it. I broke both my ankles too. So (laughs) (laughs) it's also a personal example here. Um, so the physical pain is, you know, it's extremely um, costly. You can't move. And yet in the long term, it's going to serve you well, especially if we think about um, pain, physical pain, not only in humans, but non-human animals over long periods of evolutionary history. Um, you know, we didn't have casts. We didn't have surgery. So when I broke my ankle, um, I went into surgery. They could put a screw in. But that's something very, very new and very, very recent. Um, So for most of evolutionary history, if you broke your ankle, you're going to be laid up for a long time. And by doing that, you end up with an ankle that heals properly. And therefore, in the long term, you have a much better functioning foot than you would if you didn't do it. So the physical pain, although it has these short-term costs, has its long-term benefits um, of allowing your foot to heal properly and also hopefully – causing you to really reflect, don't do that stupid thing that I did that caused me to break my ankle. Um, I bet mine was dumber than yours. (laughs) Mine was pretty dumb. Both of mine were really dumb. So, um, and I have learned, (laughs) uh, took two times though. Um, so I think depression, um, and just sadness more generally and low mood more generally have a very close kind of analogy with physical pain Um, In this case, it's not something, a physical injury, but it might be something like what we might call a social injury. Um, Somebody close to you has died. Um, You've lost your job. You lost your mate. Um, And first of all, and so you start feeling psychic pain um, that might or might not rise to the level of what we want to call depression, but it's still very much in that same ballpark of low mood, sadness, um, And I think it performs very, very similar functions that, first of all, um, think about what you're doing and don't make things worse. Um, So if somebody's just left you, um, you might think, okay, I don't want to drive everybody away, so what am I doing here? Um, Did I do something? And then also for the future, 
you get a new mate, you don't want to drive them off too. Right. So really, you really do need to think about what caused this bad thing to happen. And is there anything you can do to prevent it from getting worse? And is there anything you can learn from this? And so the psychic pain, the sadness, the low mood, and maybe even what we would call depression, um, we know for a fact that most sad, uh, most depressions occur in the wake of some kind of adversity. Um, probably eighty to ninety-five percent of them, a very very large fraction of them. So something really bad has happened. And the real mystery of depression is not that you feel bad, or because everybody would. The real mystery of depression is. Most people, when something bad happens, they feel bad. They feel sad for a few days or a few weeks. Right. Um, and then it passes and that's the end of it. Um, but clinical depression is characterized by prolonged sadness, prolonged low mood, prolonged loss of interest in all activities. Um, so it seems like a more prolonged and severe form of sadness than what most people would experience in this, what we would think might be the same situation. Mm. And that's the question. Is it exactly the same situation? <laughs> or if... Person A um, gets dumped um, and person B gets dumped. It might look the same to the outsiders, but maybe it's really a lot worse for person B for some reason. Hmm. Um, maybe they're at a stage in their life where it would be very hard for them to go and get another mate. Um, or uh, they've just had problems with that in the past or whatever it might be. So even though things that look comparable to others might, if we really knew all the details – there might be, and I think there's evidence that there is, objectively worse for the person who is experiencing the more severe symptoms. So that might be one thing that distinguishes these. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, because as, as you're talking, I think – and, and you, you saying how, you know, what about people with real problems? Because that's <laughs> kind of what I always like. I would beat myself up for beating myself up because I was raised – I had a very pleasant kind of upbringing and, right. you know, I wasn't like abused. I was I, a very nice family, very pleasant build kind of upbringing and, and um, I, I – but I had suffered depression pretty early on and pretty constantly for a long time. And most of it was just a lot of like social regret or I'd feel like an outcast or something and I, I would tend to ruminate on, on something, you know, which is what kids in middle school and high school do anyway. I, this happens to a lot of people. Um, but, but I was thinking it's, it's, it is kind of funny that, um, that it, it didn't stop me from uh, like now I embarrass myself for a living. <laughs> it didn't stop me from, from going out there and taking chances. But I was thinking may, maybe it, maybe it made me sit down and think and maybe the re part of the reason why I'm a stand-up comic was was to exert more control over um you know how I asserted myself socially because when I'm doing stand-up I have all the control I I've rehearsed everything I've written everything there's no variables um I don't know those are just some kind of thoughts that I've had as you're talking well that's actually uh, an interesting point because there have been a huge number of studies, again, looking for what's different between the people who just get sad and the folks who really get depressed. And one of those things is a feeling of powerlessness. Um, and that is a very, very common characteristic of, of people who have experienced depression is that they feel powerless to change things. And so often something bad happens, um, but if you feel you have the power to make things better um, – you tend to not get depressed, but if you don't feel you have that power and mm. kind of mainstream psychology and clinical psychology and psychiatry has treated that as kind of like a flaw in the person. Uh, somehow they have some cognitive um, dysfunction that they feel trapped or they feel powerless, but they're really not. But I think actually there's a lot of situations where people actually are yeah. powerless um, and that they're not wrong. Right. And yeah, so I, um, I don't think it's a, um, a cognitive dysfunction. I think it's probably in most cases reflects reality um, that oftentimes, especially young people who is, you know, young people don't have a lot of power in this world and um, a lot of things happen that they can't control. And so that would be a vulnerability factor that kind of makes sense in that context. And another one is um, being female. 
and um, females are have about twice the the risk of depression as males, and that's been shown over and over and over in in many different populations and many different studies. And again, um, a lot of folks have well, maybe not a lot of folks, but but myself and others, um, a few others have linked this to uh, possibly women's social position um, and being less politically powerful. And um, I just have a paper coming out now where I extend this actually to physical strength because if something bad happens and you are physically strong, there's increasing evidence that people who are physically strong, and by this I mean actual upper body strength, you know, bench press strong, right. uh, they get angry and they threaten people because there you know that if it comes down to fighting, they're probably going to win. Right, right. Um, and the people who don't have a high amount of upper body strength – um, tend to not do that. Well, now you're explaining even more about my history. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I did a study, um, and I actually first started talking to some clinical, um, some clinicians who were friends and colleagues of mine. I said, you know, when you get patients, are any of them the real muscle guys, you know? And they're like, never. Um, mm. And I'd always had this intuition that um, – upper body strength might be a protective factor against becoming depressed. And finally, um, a big data set was published. Um, it's called the NHANES and the, the U S government runs the study every year and they collect, it's a very high quality study. They collect all kinds of health variables. And one of the variables they collect is depression. So they actually, they get a large nationally representative sample and measure all kinds of health stuff, including your levels of depression and I always thought, you know, I hope they someday do upper body strength because then I'll be able to test mm -hmm. in this very large uh, nationally representative sample if upper body strength is protective against depression. So finally, I didn't ask them to do this, but they did it. They included upper body strength in the in the data set um, last year. And I was able to test if upper body strength does protect you from being depressed. And it does. Um, if you have high upper body strength, you have less than half the um, risk of getting depressed than if you have low upper body strength. That's so interesting. So, so are, if you have more upper body strength, are you more prone toward anger then? In other studies, yes. So this particular okay. study doesn't have an anger variable right, there, right. but in other studies, you, if you have a high upper body strength, including some of mine, you get angry more, you're physically aggressive more, um, you kind of feel more entitled um, mm -hmm. in a number of different dimensions. So is it is it roughly the same mechanisms activating this though? Even even if it's say say it's a person who, uh, okay. So so say there's a, a strong person and a weak person that lose the same the same job, and the and the strong person gets angry about it, the weak person gets depressed about it. Is it is it the same sort of cognitive mechanisms. I, I, I don't know how much, That's how a great well question. the neuroscience. Yeah. It I is, mean, this is a brand new idea. We just have one test of it. So I can't claim that we have a huge amount of evidence mm -hmm. for this. Um, but what we, what a lot of studies have shown is that as a group, the depressed feel trapped, they feel powerless, they're angry. Mm. So it's, and a lot of times, um, some of the studies shown that it's like suppressed anger and, um, they also are in a lot of conflicts with social close social partners. So it's a being depressed is a situation of intensified social conflict, intensified anger, um, intensified feelings of powerless, um, to do anything about those conflicts. Hmm. And so if they are, I think they're maybe not exactly the same mechanisms, but I kind of view them as alternate strategies. Mm -hmm. So if you are physically strong, um, you kind of learn that people defer. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and when something bad happens um, and you're not getting the help you need, um, people know that you might get angry and they're going to uh, not want to challenge you. And so you tend to get what you need. Whereas if you're not that way, people might tend to blow you off more. And I think this might explain the sex difference because upper body strength is one of the most sexually dimorphic physical characteristics. Almost all men have more upper body strength than almost all women. Mm -hmm. There's almost, there's a little overlap, but not much. Mm -hmm. And so, um, part of our study was to test is the sex difference in depression, really not a sex difference, but a strength difference. And that's what our data show that it's really not. And it, because we see the same strength 
effect within women and within men. And if we do all the stats, we can show that when you put, when you account for physical strength, actually men are slightly more likely to get depressed than women if you match them exactly on upper body strength. So, um, and then we controlled for all kinds of other stuff. Like, is it really, if you have low upper body strength, maybe it's physical disability, um, or maybe it's some hormone levels and this and that. And that's the advantage of this NHANES, um, data that they actually measure all that stuff so we can check and no, it isn't any of those things. As far as we can tell, at least based on this data, it really is the sex difference in upper body strength that explains the sex difference in depression. Hypothesis unproven, but at least one, one hmm. study in support so far. So, Do you think this would also help explain why um, people in CrossFit are so annoyingly upbeat and optimistic <laughs> all, all the time? Well, I mean, what the data seem to be showing is that people who are physically formidable uh, tend to get their way. Right. Um, and so it's kind of like physical attractiveness. There's tons of studies out there that show that physically attractive people do better. Job interviews. Job interviews, yeah, right. better pay, all this stuff. And it's looking like um, upper body strength might be a, a similar kind of – have a similar kind of social effect to physical attractiveness. Hmm. Um and maybe one that applies more to men than to women because men are the ones that um, tend to have the higher upper body strength. Do you think that um, – and I, I I make a habit of, of usually making my guests, my guests wildly speculate more than most right. scientists are comfortable with. So you're all, always welcome to pass on any question. But, but do you think that um, – uh, you, you mentioned kind of leading into this that um, – you know, females, it, it might also, not just the physical strength, but females um, might have a lower social status or, or, or less control in, uh, you know, a patriarchal society. Do you think that as it seems that developed nations, cultures tend to be um, a bit more progressive in this? And it seems that, you know, wage gaps and everything else seem to be um, closing in a, a little more and people are becoming a little more aware of, of this stuff. And we may have our first female president in the United States. Do you think as, as some of these sociological changes happen that, uh, potentially in, you know, more females in university as university professors and everything else, do you, do you think that, uh, this may help curb some of female depression a little bit? Um, I don't know. Um, so our study within the United States showed that it was really physical strength that explained mm -hmm. that sex difference. Okay. Now, when you look across populations, across a wide variety of populations, um, you still see this female bias and depression. Mm -hmm. But you're right. A lot of people have thought that maybe gender inequality might alter that rate somewhat um, so that in countries with high levels of gender inequality, you might see even a bigger sex difference in depression. And, you know, you're right. I don't want to speculate. Those studies are out there. I don't have the results in my head. Right. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to guess one way or another, but as a comedian, I get to speculate as much as I want to. So. We even, so. even in highly egalitarian <laughs> societies, we see a pretty robust, two to one female right. bias. Okay. So that suggests it might be uh, a bias that's due to something more universal than just women's political power in a particular nation. And that might be this physical formidability. At least that's what we're thinking it might be right now. Because uh, no matter what country you go to, men are stronger than women. And um, there's, there's, almost no population where where the, the the sexes are equal on physical formidability. So there might be – now, how we might eventually address this, I mean, the way I would want to go is a little bit differently, and this is where I am willing to speculate, that um, if I'm right that a, a lot of these severe depressions are intimately tied up with social conflict and that depression is a strategy – kind of an alternative strategy to physical aggression. Um, what well, one person suggested, well, maybe everybody, if people are depressed, maybe, you know, 
doing uh, weight training would be uh, a good therapy. But another thing would be just how can we get better at resolving social conflicts? Because the, the root cause is not the sex difference in, in upper body strength. The root cause is that there is some something bad has happened and there is social conflict. And that's where my main beef with the the kind of mainstream approach to this is just to really downplay or ignore that kind of social conflict. Um, and even though therapists are intimately aware of that and, and um, it doesn't really percolate up into the, the major theories of depression. Um, right. So, you know, I'm not saying anything new or anything that anyone doesn't know, but when you look at, at how that fact informs the theories of depression, it often doesn't, you often see emphasis on, you know, brain chemistry right. and neurobiology and all this stuff. And you don't see anybody talking about social conflict right. and how to resolve it um, and why depression might be occurring in that kind of context. Well, uh, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I, I know that the U.S. uses more antidepressants than anyone else. And I think it's something crazy, like one in four people or something like that. Yeah, I mean, depression rates are really high and they hand out these antidepressants like candy and they don't really work. It's, or I should say they, they work, but sugar pills work almost as well. Yeah, yeah. It's the placebo effect. It's, it's the placebo effect. They, they go, uh, here, take this, and 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 it, it'll take about four weeks to kick in. Well, right. what depression lasts for four weeks? Right. And then the four weeks later, if that doesn't work, here, take this other one. This will work for sure. <laughs> right. So there's not a huge amount of evidence that they – they really outperform placebos. They do have this huge effect. It's a placebo effect. Uh, there might be a small real effect in the most severe cases of depression. Um, well, the troubling thing about that is, is that also pl the placebo effect works more the more intrusive a thing is. Like if you if you do an actual surgery and don't actually touch anything, people will think that they got better more than if you just give them a pill or whatever. So so if you if you then manufacture antidepressants where it's like, well, it's doing something to my brain. Right. You know, people well, that's going, actually one of the theories out there. It's the psychoactive effect that makes people think it's doing something, right. but really it's just making you kind of woozy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that then enhances the placebo effect. That's one story out there anyway. Um, the fact is we really, if antidepressants do work um, and they do seem to work for some people um, in some situations, we really don't know why they work. Right. And they're not correcting a chemical imbalance that, that is a theory that was a good theory back in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. uh, and it's now been completely disproved. So what exactly is going on, we don't know, and how antidepressants might be having a real effect. If they do, we don't know. It's, it's a big mystery, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit troubling because these things are very powerful psychoactive drugs. They alter neural receptor function <laughs> and we don't, and they, and those receptors are found throughout your body. They're right. found throughout your brain. They're found throughout your body. So when you take an antidepressant, you are altering uh, neural signaling throughout your brain, throughout your body in ways that we have no idea what it's doing. Right. You don't know if the, it's, it's that it's adding more serotonin or if it's blocking serotonin receptors or dopamine receptors, you don't, and then, and then those neurochemicals are, are doing different things in different parts of the brain. Exactly. So they're just shooting this thing out like a gunshot and hoping something. Right. Happens. They're, they're, they're shooting a, a shotgun, shotgun blast I mean, yeah. and, um, it seems to do something and it doesn't seem to have too many negative side effects, although we don't really know. Right. Um, hmm. and so, but even if we got to the day where we could take a pill and it really did just turn the depression off, um, we have to think, is that what we really want to do? That would be like breaking your ankle and we we now we do have the technology to turn off right. physical pain. Well, there's people with um, with, with um, congenital disorders who it's a very rare, a very very small percent of the population, but they don't feel any physical pain whatsoever, and these people's lives are are very miserable. Short. They're, yeah, yeah, they're short. They have to be monitored constantly. They're walking around on limbs that are popping out of their legs. Exactly. Um, these things are really serve very important protective functions, and I think psychic pain does too. And so. In the same way that um, a physical painkiller is you, I mean, I'm really glad when I broke my ankle <laughs> that, you know, uh, I could have Percocet <laughs> right, right, and course. it worked really well. Um, but that was after they did the surgery, they put the pins right. in, there's a big cast on it. So they fixed the problem 
Um, and so I don't need to feel that physical suffering once they've done all that. Yeah, we haven't evolved to be like, <laughs> oh, all right, there's screws in there. Good to go. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so if we could fix the social problems that I think are leading to psychic pain, um, there might be situations where a psychic painkiller that really worked would be ethical and useful in the same way that a physical painkiller is. Mm-hmm. But it would be very unethical for me to go to a doctor with a broken ankle and he gives me some Percocet or whatever and kills my pain but doesn't fix – doesn't set the ankle. Just sends me home. You don't, we won't feel anything. Right, right. And that's like, what we're trying to do with people with depression right now. We're trying to kill their psychic pain but without addressing any of the underlying issues. And I think actually a lot of therapists would, would feel the same way. They wouldn't put it in the same terms that I'm putting it in. But they would kind of look with dismay on our strong desire and push to deal with all these things chemically instead of having people actually figure out what's really going on in their lives that is causing this to happen in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is it. I like that idea of, of having, if you do deal with it, like you, you, get rejected by a girl or something like that. Then you go into your therapist, you talk it out, and you're like, oh, there's a million girls out there. You know, what do I care? Rather than, and then, and then take a little something so that you stop ruminating over this one stupid, embarrassing situation that you learned your lesson from. Right. But you would want to learn your lesson. You'd right. like to think, you know, did I screw up or did she screw up? Right. And uh, maybe I did do. And so maybe some rumination is useful here. And I'll tell a, uh, a personal story. When my dad died, my mom got very depressed, understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ruminated, he died of cancer. And so she was ruminating constantly. Like, was, did I miss something? Could I have caught this earlier? Cause my dad was a kind of the old Norwegian guy that would, you couldn't Didn't drag him into the, yeah, doctor, <laughs> into the doctor. And so, um, and so she was miserable for a long time. And I, I did research and the kind of cancer he had would have been very difficult for anybody to, to spot. So I knew she was not at fault. Um, but because she ruminated on this so much and was thinking about it so much, she started talking to a lot of our family and found out that a number of men in our family had died of colon cancer, the same thing my dad died of. And so she started really bugging me to <laughs> go check, yeah. get yourself checked out um, as a direct consequence of, I would say, her depression and rumination about uh, my dad's death. And uh, when I finally did that, sure enough, they found a big polyp. And so wow. her learning process didn't save my dad, but it could have saved me. Yeah, yeah. And and, and if she had, and, if they had just given her, her genes right, in you too. Right, so exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And her genes are in mine. So <laughs> right. she did increase her biological fitness <laughs> right. if that was in fact the case. And if they had just given, if they had a psychic painkiller, uh, so that she, they could have instantly turned off her depression and her rumination. She might not have never talked to the family member. She might not have ever learned that stuff. She might not have bugged me constantly to right, go right. and get checked out. Um, and maybe I would have colon cancer right now. Who knows? So that might be the kind of risk we're facing if we just shut off psychic pain that people won't go through that learning process um, and really think what areas in their life do they need to change or might want to address in some way. So I think it's it's just really um, mind-boggling that these kinds of issues aren't being discussed more widely when it comes to chemical chemically treating depression. Yeah, when I when I get like say um, de- depressed over career issues, which typically that's that's not the case. It's just, it's just a little more tangible. I can put my finger on it, and that is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it, it, and it, it usually comes after something good, like I just recorded a new album or something like. That. But then I have to start all over, and I'm not sure what direction I want to go, and I'm thinking of a few things, and maybe my first little tries at something aren't really working, and I might fall into where I'm really ruminating and dwelling on it for a while, and it's inhibiting my ability to be as good of a performer, and I you know, might not have as much confidence. But a lot of times, out of that, what happens is all of a sudden... I, something sparks and I have some great idea. And then I, I now have this clear path right. of where I know where I need to head. Yeah. And if that is what's happening in your case, I think then maybe, maybe that's a little bit of evidence for what I'm saying. Right. I should say there are definitely people who seem to get depressed where there doesn't seem to be any reason. They have multiple lifelong depressions. Um, and those are very much the rare case 
but we know every kind of mechanism can malfunction. Like physical pain, there are people that are feeling physical pain, even though there's no physical injury. And so there are pain disorders, genuine pain disorders where there's nothing to fix. There's no broken ankle. (laughs) There's just the pain. And in that case, we would want to just turn the pain off. Right. So maybe in like 10% of these populations, the antidepressants absolutely are working. And and needed. Exactly. And so it's probably not as high as 10%, but yeah, yeah. I was um, was being a little generous, but (laughs) probably there are, there's definitely cases where I would, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all that, folks are experiencing a lot of psychic pain when there isn't anything wrong. And it's just a mechanism that is turning on when it shouldn't be turning on. And, um, in those cases, it would be, you know, perhaps potentially life-saving to have, um, a drug that could just turn off that psychic pain mechanism that doesn't need to be turned on. My worry is, uh, once you have one of those, people are going to use it in all the cases and the vast majority of them, I think something clearly has gone wrong that people should reflect on, even though that will entail, um, some suffering, um, right. For, you know, some time period. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the, uh, kind of the opposite end of that was just the old, like, pull up your bootstraps kind of attitude. Everyone has problems. Get over it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm definitely not saying that I'm saying, yeah, you've got to, you do have a real problem. It is really serious. And in many cases, we don't appreciate how serious some problems are. Like we might say, you know, your wife left you, plenty of women out there, go find another one. But if we think about evolutionary, um, you know, human evolution, we weren't living in cities with millions of people and, you know, online dating and all this stuff. And if your wife left you, you might not, there might not be another, <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna that's it. Try before 40 people. All yeah. the other ones are already taken. And everybody else is already taken. So really you are out of luck. Yeah. Um, and so we, I think it's easy for us to underestimate how bad some of these things can be. Um, and there may be social situations that over evolutionary time really had a negative impact on fitness that we don't really appreciate. Um, you know, there's a lot of science left to be done to try mm-hmm. and understand human social relationships. Um, and I'll just give you uh, another case. One of these college students that I was talking to, uh, you know, 20 years ago, um, had a very severe depression. It was really tough to nail down, but talking with this person, um, it became clear that she was really competing in a heavy conflict with her mother over investment from her dad. She really wanted her dad to invest in her so she could pursue her dreams and her mom wanted her dad to invest in her, uh, instead. And so her mom and her were in this huge kind of Shakespearean struggle over the father and, um, his dad, who's dad going to side with. Um, and that might sound, and it was really tough to get at that. And I'm not even sure I'm a hundred percent sure that I nailed the problem, but those kinds of things would be they're not, you know, textbook lists of kind of bad things that happen to you that you end up in a conflict with your mother <laughs> right, right. over, you know, who is your dad going to really invest in here? Um, and yet if we think about it, most of us do need a lot of help from parents to get launched on careers and, you know, you need them to pay for college or to pay know, rent sometimes, pay rent sometimes. Gigs aren't coming in. And so if, your dad is not doing that you face and you need to, you want to pursue some career that requires four more years of college or some very risky thing. Um, and dad doesn't do it. You may be really stuck in a crappy job because you don't have the money to just go out and not work for the next four years. So that's, that was the situation this person was in that if, if their parents, if her parents and her dad specifically, could have done that. She could have probably launched much because she was extremely talented person. Mm. Um, so she was kind of seeing, you know, being trapped in this really miserable, high paying, but deadly dull job Mm -hmm. versus a riskier, but much more exciting and interesting and rewarding job. But that required parental investment that just wasn't there. So there can be these kind of subtle things that could really, um, you know, be more severe problems than we appreciate. Yeah. Uh, well, that actually leads quite nicely into um, some of your work I was uh, looking over regarding the idea of, of uh, kind of uh, a, a, like a worker strike uh, theory of depression. Can right. you explain that? Yeah. So 
And that kind of go along with the physical strength thing. So what the physically strong, what can they do if you don't do what they want? Well, they can beat the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, they can physically uh, harm you. What can a, you know, 90 pound woman do if people aren't doing what she wants. And this is what we often see in the kind of societies I work in. Young girls are often married off to um, older men by their parents. So the young woman doesn't choose who she wants to marry. Her parents do. And in many cases they end up, their parents choose somebody that the, the young woman really doesn't like or doesn't want to marry. What can she do about it? She can't physically threaten people. Um, she doesn't have much power in that situation, but she really does have power over her own life and her own well-being. And so it's it's kind of what I do call the the labor strike analogy, that she can threaten to put her own health and well-being at risk. And if she dies, um, guess who the parents aren't marrying off to that. Right. That, that other group there. And these marriages are very politically valuable to the parents. Um, so these are the way these different groups form alliances with each other. So the, the young women um, often do either become very depressed and they stop eating and they stop doing anything. They're not caring for their little siblings um, and they're losing weight and they're, and often they will threaten or attempt suicide. And that's exactly like a worker going on strike. If, if a company isn't paying a worker enough, the worker can say, fine, I'm not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then no widgets are coming out of the factory. So if you want those widgets to sell, right. you better uh, give me a better paycheck. And I think depression might have in the, in the severe cases, especially those involving suicidal threats, a very analogous kind of role um, that these young women can put their own value to others at risk. So if those others want you to take care of the kids or marry that guy, um, marry somebody or, um, you know, cook dinner, whatever it might be, they better make you a better deal than they're making you right now. They better figure out somebody for you to marry that you do want to marry. Mm-hmm. Um, or they better step in. And if they're not helping, I, I originally came up with this idea with regard to postpartum depression, um, when a young baby is born, about 10 or 15% of women feel depressed. And the evidence is just overwhelming that in many of those cases, they don't feel they have enough social support. What's the bargain there? If you want me to take care of this kid, you better step up and help me more. Otherwise, I'm not going to be feeding the kid. I'm not going to be taking care of this kid. They're not saying any of this consciously, of course. Right, right. Um, but that's the net effect that they dramatically reduce their investment in this new infant and in the kinds of environments that we evolved in that infant isn't going to survive very long if mom isn't really paying close attention and providing a lot of care. And so if dad or other family members want that baby to survive, they better step up and provide the mom the help that she needs to actually successfully raise that infant. So she is essentially bargaining with um, her investment in the baby um, in order to get the investment she needs to actually, because again, in these small scale societies and hunter gatherer societies, it's not just a choice. Oh, I can to, to care for an infant. You're have to expend, you know, 500 calories every day. And somebody has got to be bringing you those 500 calories. And if they're not, you start converting your own body into milk. So, and you can't take care of your other kids. And so your other, the lives of your other kids might genuinely be at risk um, if you're trying to raise a baby without enough help mm-hmm. or your own health might be at risk. So it, it's, it's, it really can be a life or death situation um, in these small scale societies. If mom is not getting the care she needs and yet is being forced to raise an infant that she doesn't have the resources to raise. Yeah. That's a very interesting idea that I'd never heard. I, I mean, I, I, I'd heard stuff about, um, kind of, it, you know, depression being a motivator to get you to learn a lesson or to change strategy but um, I think that's a very, very interesting idea because you do see um, when, when people kind of um, often non-consciously uh, successfully kind of advertise their uh, their depression or that they're having a hard time, a lot of times their friends or social circle will step in and, and help out or you know, buy them a dinner or do, you know, invest more time or energy or caring. You know, I had a roommate uh, one at one time went through a real bad breakup and, you know, was moping around for a month or two. And I, I 
often would find myself like going out and getting him some beers or you know whatever and spending a lot more time and checking in and making sure that he was okay. And that's what we see. And and what you'll often hear is that depression has the effect of alienating others, which it does. Nobody likes a depressed person. Yeah, yeah. But they help anyway. Right. And the question is, why would you help anyway if this person is doing something really annoying? Why would you help? Well, in the small societies that we evolved in, everybody has to contribute or it doesn't work. Everybody has to go and find food and share that food or prepare the food or help take care of the kids. It's kind of like a cooperative. And if one person is not getting a fair deal in the cooperative, if they stop doing their share, it's going to really impact everybody else. And that then motivates everybody else to say, okay, we're going to step in. We're going to help you because it's actually in our interest. Uh, we want you to take care of that baby. Therefore, we're going to bring you more food or we want you to, to um, marry somebody that's a good person for all of us. Therefore, we're going to figure out somebody better for you to marry. So, and I think this is interesting. This is another, you know, kind of um, in terms of kind of social justice. If you look at what, where's a lot of the support for the chemical imbalance theory coming, coming from big corporations, not only the pharmaceutical companies that are selling these drugs, but um, depression is a huge hit on productivity in corporate America, in businesses. So there's, if you look at how research on depression and money for research on depression is sold, it's sold uh, in, in um, many respects by the negative impact that depressed workers have on the bottom line. Right. And when you look, and here's the thing that really disturbs me, when you look at the literature on depressed workers – why are they depressed? Every one of them says, uh, because I'm not being treated fairly at work. Right, right. And so Here, corporate marriage, take, this pill. <laughs> take right. this pill and yeah, now you'll yeah. be a happy worker. Well, it's like Ritalin and everything else. Uh, these are the drugs that they hand out like candy because it keeps people running on the hedonic treadmill and doing, you know, what, whatever you say. Exactly. And so I just, I just, it's stunning to me that the, the ethical and, you know, I'm not saying I'm right, but that people right. should be at least questioning i think you're absolutely right but, uh if somebody's depressed at work agreement. and if they feel like they're depressed because they're not appreciated or they're not being compensated fairly um they're not always going to be wrong they might be wrong sometimes yeah. they're not wrong 100 percent of the time and i would say it's probably um a good 50 percent or maybe 80 percent of the time they're probably right that they are being exploited we just cut your cubicle in half that's all <laughs> why are you so grumpy about it here take some pills right exactly <laughs> rather than giving you more space again right rather than giving you a better workspace or better working conditions or a better salary or whatever it might be so there's a huge incentive um, to, um, in, on the, on the part of corporations and other businesses to, to find the happy pill. Yeah, it is interesting that I, I feel like there's a, there's a lot of social pressure and, and, and you're, I mean, no one, no one wants someone who's a pessimist all the time and bringing everyone else down all the time. Um, uh, although people go to comedy shows to watch, <laughs> to listen to a bunch of comedians uh, right. complain about life. Right. Um, but, uh, but it does seem like there's still so much pressure in society to just have this limitless optimism. And if you ever, you know, if, if you uh, lose your job or whatever else, it's because you just weren't like cheery enough around around the workplace. And and, uh, you, you know, chip her up and you want to your job is not just to do the work, but to brighten everyone else's right. day and, and never Not bring them down. And, right. and it, it seems that, you know, if depression is maybe this useful tool in, in, uh, in this um, kind of worker strike uh, uh, sort of way, and, and it is this effective um, function for getting, getting a little extra energy and investment and, and people that do need it when they've hit a rough patch, um, it seems like may maybe eventually it would be nice if we lived in a society where we're much, much like now people are a little more into like meditation and mindfulness than, than they used to be. Uh, people used to poo poo this and it wasn't very, you know, a very tough thing to do to be into mindfulness. Now people are starting to realize, oh, you know, I'm starting to learn more about yourself. It, it could almost go the other way with, with having kind of conspicuous mindfulness with being more with being more open, uh, people being more open about how, rather than just being like, how's your day? Oh, good. Well, everyone says that. And we put, 
It, just as you're talking about this, I feel like I've been doing it wrong the whole time because anytime I'm depressed, I I lock myself in my room and Netflix and chill, and then uh, and then I go outside and I put on a happy face and I don't let anyone know that I'm having a hard time. Right. I should have been doing that the opposite the, the whole time. So maybe if we lived in a place where people were uh, encouraged to be more open and to share more, they would people would be able to I don't know help each other out more. That might be overly optimistic or a little flighty or. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's going to be a simple solution in the, in these small societies that I, that I work with. Um, there's no, there is no room. <laughs> you can't hide. You know, right. if somebody's not taking care of the kids, everybody sees that immediately. If somebody's not bringing home the food that's seen immediately. And right. so there's an immediate impact um, if things aren't going well. And it's really hard to hide that. Unlike here where you often can, you know, telecommute or right. <laughs> lock yourself in the room or just put in your hours and go home and be miserable. That really wasn't an option. People um, couldn't like cave drawing and chill back then right, while yeah. everyone <laughs> else no, was out getting, exactly. the, <laughs> getting um, the meat. Exactly. So um, on the other hand, I, I'm not optimistic that there's any easy solution because there are genuine conflicts here. Mm. And um, if something bad happens to me, that might require other people to do more and that's bad for them. (laughs) They're going to have to now not do something they want to do and uh, focus on my problems. And that is a cost to them. And Mm. so I think the relentless pressure that you mentioned to be happy is precisely because people's like, if you're not, then I've got to do something yeah, yeah, and that's a cost to me. And I don't want to pay that cost right now right. for whatever reason, because I'm doing my thing. Right. And so when bad things do happen, it does cause conflict because it does require us to now help one person instead of doing other things that might be better for us. Mm. And I'm not sure that that's going to be avoidable. <laughs> right. I, I, I just feel like there's a uh, people, people kind of pick and choose their, um, uh, their their evidence for for what makes for a successful life. Like I was just reading some <coughs> stupid news story it was about how what one type of people everyone avoids one one type of people that every rich person avoids. And this person spent years studying rich people, and he's like they they avoid pessimists like the plague. Well, I get that. Often rich people are optimistic. Like I was very optimistic about becoming a successful comedian and people might be like, Oh, well, Shane just did that because he believed in himself. Well, there's a thousand other comics that believe in themselves just as much as me and that are just as talented and are never going to go anywhere. And there's people that aren't very talented and believe in themselves way more than I do and are never going to go anywhere. So optimism isn't everything in life. Right. False optimism is, is, (laughs) is not a panacea. That's for sure. Um, well, that leads nicely into um, something that I, I think uh, we could wrap up with. But, but, so before we wrap up, um, I always ask my guests to plug a charity of their choice each week. So uh, what is the charity you had in mind? So I like uh, to donate to Direct Relief International of Santa Barbara. Um, those guys provide a huge amount of medical care and other emergency assistance to people around the world at a very, very, uh, in a very, very efficiently, <laughs> extremely, almost all the money you donate to them will, will help, um, the folks that are trying to help, um, and not be lining somebody's pocket. So, um, if you have a few extra bucks, consider direct relief international. All right. Terrific. And as always, everybody can go to the here we are podcast.com website and there'll be a link learn more or you can just google direct relief international um and uh, so so back to um uh false optimism i i saw you did some work on on uh delusions yeah (laughs) and and their um the function of delusions essentially could you talk a little bit about that yeah that was um that was the hardest paper um, I've ever had to publish. I think I've submitted it like 15 times <laughs> before anyone would publish that. Um, so you were delusional about I this I was very delusion. delusional <laughs> about this paper, exactly. And um, again, this was some of the folks that I, when I was um, in college, um, were pretty clearly delusional. They had delusions of grandeur or paranoid delusions. Um, 
And so what we would, most people would consider very severe mental illnesses. And I do think schizophrenia, for example, is a genuine mental disorder. It doesn't have some hidden function. But there's a group of folks that don't have schizophrenia, but do have delusions of grandeur or paranoid delusions, um, things that can't, that could be true, but really are very unlikely to be true. Like the CIA is after you or the Russian KGB or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or that you have special knowledge or special powers. Um, and when you investigate the social context of those folks, cause I was thinking, well, if it, if there is something strategic here, um, it would have to be in relation to the social environment or very likely would be. Um, there's really overwhelming evidence that these people are um, very um, at high risk of being socially excluded or ostracized or isolated. Um, so they're in what, again, over the course of human evolution would have been probably the most dire social circumstances where your group is ready to throw you out of the group. Yeah, I just had, not to interrupt, but I just had, it's just on my mind. About a week ago, I did a show and I was hanging out talking with everybody afterwards and we were hanging out at the bar and there's a group of us just talking about like rock climbing or something. And then this this guy came over and started um, talking Bernie Sanders had just won Wisconsin or whatever, and he was excited about that. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, and then we, we started just lightly talking about the lightest of politics. And next thing you know, this guy just starts ranting about the shadow government and all these conspiracy theories. Yeah, I've, I've known a lot of conspiracy theorists in my life, and uh, they, they just irritate me a bit. Um, but not that I don't think there's conspiracies and blah, blah, blah. But... <laughs> But um, but it was everyone just kind of turned and looked at one another and was like, okay, and like ostracized this guy from the group right. uh, immediately. So. And that would be the standard story that what causes you to be ostracized is the fact that you have this brain dysfunction that's causing these delusions. But when I looked into it really carefully, there's actually quite a bit of evidence, not for schizophrenia, but just for this what's called delusional disorder, which is pretty much just pure delusions. Is, is this anything like uh, it, what, what's schizotypoid? So there's a whole spectrum of disorders that are schizophrenic type disorders and they do involve delusions often, but they also involve a number of other cognitive and motor deficits as well. And so um, okay. that's what would differentiate schizophrenic and schizophrenic spectrum disorders from pure delusional disorder, which is just delusions, okay. no motor dysfunction, no other cognitive dysfunctions whatsoever. You've just got the delusions and nothing else. And what you see, um, what, and the evidence again, is pretty clear as far as we can tease these things apart is that some kind of severe social adversity comes first. Uh, and then the delusions come second. And by severe social diversity, um, Adversity. I mean, something that would put you at severe risk of of being thrown out of the group. Um, and um, just to give you an example, one of the groups that was suffering this were the Nazi collaborators in Norway after World War II, uh, and the delusion rates were really high in that group because, of course, post World War II, they were the most hated right. folks in Norway. Um, and um, immigrant populations have very high rates of this as well because these are folks that are – and it doesn't seem to be that they – it seems like the, the delusions hit after they they migrate and they feel in a foreign culture and they're not really integrated. Um, and so then the question is what is delusion – how does delusion help you? <laughs> folks are about to throw you out of the group and what can you do? If you're thrown out, you're probably going to die because over our um, evolutionary history, you just didn't survive alone. Um, and how might these delusions help you? Well, it looks like the delusions, um, are exactly the kinds of things that if, if they were true, people would want to keep you around. You have special powers, you have special knowledge, right. you are, you know a lot about some severe external threat to the group. Um, right, right, right. and so it's a last ditch effort. I think you're lying through your teeth. You're not doing this consciously, but you're telling the best lie you can possibly tell, 
that you are valuable to the group, even though everybody's already concluded you're probably uh, a bigger cost than a benefit, and it's a last ditch effort. Yeah, I mean, if they're if this if he's right about the shadow government, and they're gonna and they're trying to poison me and you would want to know water that and everything else. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and if you think about it, today we have all these independent sources of information, so we can recognize that stuff as kind of loopy and out there. But if you're living in a small group of you know a couple dozen people. Uh, and we don't have science and we don't have the internet and we don't have Walter Cronkite or whoever <laughs> to tell us what's what. Um, and some guy starts going off on there's guys over the hill that are coming to kill us all. Um, then can we pause for one sec? Absolutely. And we're back. We just got, uh, we got interrupted by the phone call. I feel a bit foolish here. I am talking about how there's no shadow government and then the shadow government somehow heard us talking and called in to tell us to stop talking about them. And, uh, so I guess I was wrong. Um, but you're, so you're saying in our ancestral past that, uh, that if you told uh, perhaps some story of, of some other tribe over the hill that no one else can see or, or exactly that this kind of powerful external threat we know is in all societies, one of the biggest unifying, I mean, all of our politicians do it, right? right. If they want to manipulate the public, they play up some big external threat. Right, right. So it's the Russians or it's the Iranians or it's yeah, ISIS, whatever, whatever yeah. ISIS, whatever. Um, and so it's a very powerful manipulative technique. And so I was proposing that, um, Maybe that's going on. What's going on with these extremely um, socially threatened individuals? That something triggers in their head. It's not conscious, um, but to tell the biggest best lie they can as a last ditch effort. Um, I've not been able to, I think, convince one other person that this idea has any merit. Mm. So I'm the, as you pointed out, well, uh, initially they. Me. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm <laughs> You're the first. One. Uh, I have some listeners might be on board with you. <laughs> the paranoid among you. <laughs> Um, well, that's very interesting. Well, I, I feel very much more informed about uh, depression in general, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll at least help uh, deal with it. Now, now next time I'm depressed, I'll be like, this is a good thing, Shane. You're <laughs> going to you go. learn so much from this. I doubt I'll be able to actually feel that way, but uh, it, it, does, it always helps to understand things a little more and, and be more mindful. Um, so thank you, Ed Hagen, for joining me today. This is a wonderful conversation. And thank you, listeners, as always, for being curious and wonderful. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I am sorry to inform you there is no episode next week. Uh, maybe we'll try to make up for it with a, uh, a bonus episode one of these days. I just screwed up. I miscalculated how many episodes I had in the bank, and this is kind of uh, perfect timing for us to take uh, take care of a few technical errors um, with uh, with the updating problem that I've I've talked about on this podcast. We're changing services, and uh, so all of that takes a little bit of time. And the main reason I've been a little bit behind um, with with banking episodes lately is because I've been concentrating on putting together the first live here we are podcast. I will be doing it May 19th in Wilmington, North Carolina at the Cape Fear Comedy Festival. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be three guests and me in front of a live audience. And so you're, you'll all get to hear that. But if you happen to know anyone in Wilmington, please spread the word. It's my first time trying this. And I've been trying to figure out a few things. Um, with that, I, I have some other... Uh, behind-the-scenes industry stuff that is in very fundamental stages of, of trying to create some other projects related to this podcast. And um, so I, I've been working hard on that. So lots more to come, but we are taking a break next week. Um, so I apologize for that, but we're going to be back and better than ever. Uh, we're also one of the things that uh, I'm going to be working on this week is uh, is changing some of the uh, the marketing techniques that I've been using and improving upon them and running a few trials uh, with some new marketing strategies and making a few changes 
regarding all, all of more news for you when you come back. But anyway, I just wanted to let you guys know what was going on um, in my life and with the podcast. And thank you very much for listening. And I will see you again. Talk to you again. I guess I'm not going to see you. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Thank you for listening, especially those of you that listened all the way to the end. You're my favorite. You know that. say uh seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld I'd love having you 